What's up, everybody? What's up, patrons? Welcome to your next installment of our reading series on Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and the Last Man. Today's a special one. We've got return guest Matt Kelly, who we haven't seen since the big stonk squeeze. And months and months after the squeeze has squoze and things have shaken out over at GameStop. And what was it? What was the theater? Oh, AMC. AMC. Yeah. And by the way, by the way, I'm 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 short a lot of those stocks now. So I've completely flipped my tune. Nice, hell yeah, dude. I'm just 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 pure opportunist yeah. Um, yes. um, capitalism over here. Yeah. No, you must you must remain as liquid as the market. That is, that's how it has to go. I'm just here you know? to bear everyone's uncertainty and risk, you know? Yeah, I'm man. Just, I'm just here to earn that premium. Dude, um, I'm, just, I'm here to hear your testimony, man. Speak but, on but, it, brother. <laughs> but, but by the way, you can, you can also introduce me as DJ Deep Thought. Um, oh yeah, my 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 musical fans will will, will all, all right. I, I can hear them. I can hear them. I can hear all ten of them clamoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They really want to know. They want to know what's up. Okay, so today we are going to talk to talk through section two of this, which is sort of I think at first blush a weird section. This is where you guys tell me if I've clocked this right. After basically saying, like, as I said on the last episode, get in the van, loser, we're doing liberalism. The Cold War is over. We won. Maybe we shouldn't be so pessimistic anymore. It seems like his next maneuver is to flesh out what he means in the first section by universal history and why it is important. And he's going to do that in a few ways. The first thing he's going to do is a genealogy so that we understand why he's even using this term and why it might be important to us. And then he's going to look for what he calls capital M, the mechanism by which this universal history progresses. And he will get only so close by touching the natural sciences and suggest at the end that there needs to be a deeper account of what is essentially I took to be the human appetites and what is perhaps capital G, what are the capital G goods towards which we're striving in this universal history? And that that would help us evaluate what type of regime might actually end history by satisfying those very goods. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think that's more or less right. The interplay it seemed to me in that section was really like he introduces the typologies that we're probably all pretty familiar with of like, you have like the, I guess you could say it's the idea that starts maybe even with like works and days with the, the ages of man, like bronze, mm. gold and all that, which is cyclical to some extent where societies will rise and fall, or he even calls it like an Aristotelian idea that they're civilizations we've never even heard of because they rose and fell and were wiped off the face of the earth and now they're gone forever and that will just be the eternal turn of things and how for him christianity like comes in and creates the uh I don't the know, possibility like, of the universal <clears throat> history yeah the lose would call it the shizura the kaisura that like cuts and like rips open this completely new possibility of a linear timeline, which he ascribes it more to Kant, where he says finally in Kant or something, we are like standing on a line and we're looking forward and backward. And there's no longer this like spiral or whatever that we're kind of taking part in. 
and that that everything will eventually have this like final end towards which it is marching which i'm sure mm -hmm. we're also pretty familiar with whether it's the expectation of the final coming of christ or something else yeah something but else. there's a lot of i think as we've talked about also especially when we were gotten to our aborted attempt to read that german book which you know comparing what we read of that to this very uh, it was more satisfying intellectually perhaps but nonetheless mm -hmm. there is a certain amount of difference even within these typologies like and i also think there's a certain amount to which they mix with each other there's just a lot of nuance to these views of history which i think perhaps necessarily just have to get flattened into like there are two you know i guess it might also be the idealist aspect of fukuyama where he's like i base there are essences to these ideas that mm -hmm. are whole and unmixed. And even if they're mixed in reality, like the holes are there and, you know, like they're fighting it out, sort of something like that. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah I'm, go ahead, Matt. Well, I mean, the, Emmett, your, uh, your description sort of, of, of what's happening in this section sounds about right to me. And uh, yeah, I, I guess one thing I, I sort of want to highlight, I'll probably be saying this a lot, but like Fukuyama is, very different from i don't want to say most but he's 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 very different from a lot of other liberals like the 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 sort of the story he's charting here i, I would be sort of hard pressed to say that this is like a foundational sort of like origin story of most liberals conception of liberalism so maybe there's something like valuable to be to be learned from it therefore maybe i mean i'm 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 certain i i certainly want to be open to that but yeah like there's a there, there's a there's a teleological element to the story we're heading toward some like sort of definite capital g good like you said and and what he's that that course that he's plotting and i i, I agree with john like a lot of this a lot of this course that he's plotting is sort of flattened a little bit, maybe just by sort of the the constraint of having to do this in a finite number of pages. But but a lot of it, some of it does seem a little crude. Although I'm no Hegel scholar, right? So I don't really, sure. you know, I, I I but but I am a liberal, so I'm like, <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, I didn't know I had to be a Hegel scholar to be a liberal. But okay, so yeah. the the and and that that the idea that. I guess one thing I have kind of highlighted several times wherever I see it is he seems to see reason and man's rationality as improving, I want to say linear, linearly, although he, he's careful to kind of say it's not always linear. It's not always continuous. It's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, starts and stops and in, in this. Maybe like there's long run, linear, short run, like crazy. Yeah, there's noise in the data. He's willing yeah. to. Admit. Right, right. There's noise in the signal. There's noise in the data. It's, 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 and this is, this is not a, a clear, unambiguous, they, also, therefore, it's sort of contestable. You know, so you're sort of standing on one side of history or another, you know, so there's sort of an implicit call to action in that. And, and but yeah, th th this idea that reason, human reason is what has built and is currently sort of building free social institutions, that that's, that's sort of an, that, and I, I raised that because not every liberal thinks quite that way about the thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so I can tell 
I think a few things are going on here. And I think what you guys have touched on are really at the heart of this. And I was trying to think like, you know, I had this poetry teacher who would always say, what calls this poem out from the whiteness of the page? Like what happens before the poem in a sense that makes it need to be written, which I always thought was a fascinating way to approach, you know, trying to get at what was happening in a work like that. And I was thinking, okay, so let me imagine that the Iron Curtain has fallen and America and the Soviet Union have been in a Cold War that has really raised the stakes of ideology all over the world for an extended period of time. I'm like, what does this mean now? Because it seems easy, I can be more sympathetic to what he's trying to do if I remember how heightened the ideological contest was before he's writing it. Like we're already in his wake. So it's kind of easy to go like, I don't know, man. But if we want to give it its full thrust, I think we're like, yeah, I would want to have an, a, maybe an ideal historical account of what just happened. You know, because we can do all of the, how strong was the Soviet economy and blah, blah, blah. And he does touch on that. He's not naive to that, but he seems to find it lacking. And I think what's interesting here is you can see, you know, Hegel by way of Kozhev, by way of Fukuyama, as we get it. And there's a lot of compression in this. So we might want to let him off the hook for some things. But I also see, and this is going to feature in his ontology in the next se section that he hints at, where the Straussian influence comes in. And it's when he talks about Rousseau and when he talks about Machiavelli as two moments of change in what makes for modern thinking. And for Machiavelli, he says, which this, I love this line. This is on 57. He says, the father of the modern notion of social progress was Machiavelli, for it was he who proposed that politics be liberated from the moral constraints of classical philosophy and that man conquer fortuna or you know, contingency, whatever that may be. What's interesting about that is that is basically the Straussian line about who deviates the ancients from the moderns. And the claim is that the ancients knew most of what Machiavelli was saying. They would just never say it explicitly. You know, what is different about Machiavelli is that it is a different philosophical regime that is almost built on this Promethean nature of man. And that Rousseau, who's a highly ambiguous figure, represents almost a critique of this modernity that Machiavelli seems to inaugurate, while also abiding with some of its present premises. And I only bring that up to say that the, to, to Matt's point, there is a very strange melange of intellectual influences that are happening here that really does set Fukuyama apart from anyone else who might be arguing about what the meaning of the Cold War is. A, a, a lot of those idiosyncrasies about him too make sense to me out of why he's received probably disproportionate attention from mm -hmm. the broader like intelligentsia i guess that mm -hmm. that a lot of what i see him as kind of speaking a language that that i suppose somebody i don't know that it was the language that's going to be like legible to just anyone on the left but if i had to say it's probably more legible than most other accounts 
mm -hmm. of, of, of liberalism's history. I mean, I guess one way to easily see that is, of course, you know, he Hegel had this huge influence on Marx and he'll, 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 you know, Fukuyama talks about, about Marx as well occasionally in this, but, you know, he's, he's, he's also kind of careful. I mean, he kind of has, he, he has to say why his Hegelianism is different from Marx's Hegelianism, you know, for, for sort of obvious reasons, but, but yeah, that's just, a, that's just a sort of comment. I, I, I see, you know, it's in some ways it's sort of like unfortunate to me that Fukuyama is one of the most sort of widely read liberals. Mm -hmm. Um, but, 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 I, but now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just harping on the point I made before about his idiosyncrasies. Right. Right. But right. I was interested too. like, Emmett, do you, I mean, do you, do you see this account of, of Plato and Aristotle as having this like inherently cyclical concept of time as, as being like rooted in, rooted in reality. Cause I mean, that, that, that seems to be a big part of the story he's telling here is that, you know, the ancients had this cyclical notion of time and then with Kant and Hegel, things become sort of more linear directed. And of course with Christianity, like it's clear that that's the story he's telling, but like, do you, as somebody who's spent some time reading, you know, reading the ancients. Yeah. So I actually had a hard time. I like trying to figure out remembering like what there's always the danger when you're talking about Plato and you're like, Plato thought this because what you're really seeing in Plato, and, and I do think that this is where Fukuyama did a nice gloss of the dialectic, is a way of thought unfolding as a dialogue between two people. So I couldn't remember exactly where I'm thinking maybe the Timaeus is where he might be pulling that from, and perhaps the laws, which I'm not super familiar with, but I couldn't remember exactly where he's pulling that. And as for Aristotle, I'm not sure at all. I'm like, well, I guess that would be in the politics. I mean, I think there might be fragments of something like the cyclical view that shows up in Thucydides and perhaps Herodotus, who are doing like history intentionally. But again, I'm not, I don't remember that coming up in Thucydides, but it's a huge book and it's been a couple of years since I've read the Peloponnesian War. And I've only he read sort it. Of, he, he sort of brings up Thucydides at one point, by the way, yeah. toward the end of this section. He, yeah. To, to, I think to say that there's there, there's probably some truth to, to the idea that history repeats itself. Right. Um, yeah. And it's cyclical, but like that doesn't explain it's everything. Kinda coming at it backwards, but I know that one of the profound criticisms Al-Ghazali had of the philosophers who were largely peripatetic mm -hmm. was that they maintained the eternity of the world yeah. as a dogma. And he said that they did so not on the basis of sound philosophical proof, but merely the sweet sound of Aristotle's name had enraptured them and caused them to become slavishly devoted to his doctrines. <laughs> Whereas the eternality of the world was in fact demonstrably untrue or whatever. Sure. And then he goes on to try and prove that. And I think wrapped up within that kind of eternity is perhaps some sort of embedded cyclicality, not necessarily mm -hmm. like eternal return of the same, but just a sense of like, if things go on forever and they don't necessarily change in like a broad and kind kind of way, then you're just necessarily going to see life cycles happen forever. Yeah. I think that's probably arguably a view, but like I say that as somebody coming at it from totally the back end and like not sure. I would being say able to root it in anything Aristotelian I, directly. I, right. I would say I know that some of the Romans had similar ideas, you know, where it's sort of the three act structure of the creation of an empire that eventually falls apart. I mean, it's a meme enough where if he's not super precise, I'm kind of willing to let him have it. 
you know? And I will say that like, there's also, because we've talked a lot about energy, we had John Constable on here and we've talked about whether the industrial revolution was a revolution. There is sort of the changing materiality over time that I think anyone has to contend with when they're going to take a look at, especially Western history, because the accumulation of energy expenditure along with like the institutions that make that possible is very surprising. (laughs) If if your account of history doesn't have something to say about that, then it's like, you know, come on. Yeah. And so I think that's what he's doing with the linearity here. Right. And what's important about why he's going to talk about the different economic systems and why after you sort of break through into the steel age, central planning just falls apart to the extent that it ever worked at all seems to be his argument where it's like the, basically the, you just can't do the information anymore. Like the numbers are too much for anyone to be able to like centrally plan. And, uh, and, because... and by the way, his, I think that's right. I think that's a good characterization of, of, of how he seems to yeah, think how about he it. Sees it. Yeah. I would say that his account of that is sort of unsatisfying to me in a lot of ways because uh, he just yeah. doesn't, he doesn't do any work to explain why that is or sort of just, just put some more meat on those, on those bones. I mean, like he seems to just be like, like if I had to pin it down, it seems like at times he's saying, well, empirically, you can just kind of see differences in outcomes between these countries. And so it seems like central planning doesn't seem to work very well. And it's like, yeah, that, that, that's, that's satisfying up to a degree, but like, it would, it it would be, again, I'm going to do a lot of this sort of complaining about like, where he's frankly not liberal mm-hmm. enough, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like with their like, liberalism, well, Fukuyama. Um. Well, it's, it, it, yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, it's kind of weird to me that his account just sort of, you know, like winds up at that, at, at that assumption. And he, where, whereas there's a really large, not just large, but like kind of long-standing literature on sort of more, uh, I guess if I had to characterize it, it'd be more theoretical necessary reasons why central planning runs into problems that are Like epistemic? Yeah. Yeah. They're more foundational than they're more anything fa- he gets into. into. They're more foundational yeah. and they're probably more interesting than the, than the, the sort of, than the account that he seems the to- The fly by night? Yeah. 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 So well, you bring, think- bring that up is interesting because it made me think to like I liked that I you mentioned like a few weeks ago the term like rational constructivist liberalism it was something Hayek called this kind of thinking and to me reading this it was sort of like he almost doesn't seem to care a whole lot about why only that something is and that the isness of that thing can then be like wrapped up into what you might call ideology and the ideology is then now like being spoon fed to you. And I think Matt is right to say that that's like intellectually unsatisfying, even if you like would kind of want to agree with the conclusion he's drawing, which is sure. like, it's a the, little thin. like there's that something obvious. to that. Yeah. Which is, and like, I think not all it's, it's a boring point to say, this is not up to my standards of thought. Maybe that's not why he cared about writing the book. Like it would, it wouldn't be that interesting to say that, but what I think is interesting is that he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Like, and then asking yourself, well, why doesn't he care? And what is then the aim of this book? If like the right. substance of what you might call actual, like liberal economic thinking or whatever, 
is like not really of concern to him and he almost seems to have very little contact with that as a body of knowledge mm-hmm. which, which by the way he, he seems to have gotten away with that in part by because of the time that the book was written right mm-hmm. i mean like you have this sort of it's almost like there's a big as others have discussed as a parenthetical oh, yeah. in the background or or even like as is as is plainly obvious, obvious to all yes. of my readers now that the soviet union has collapsed yeah right, right, the alternative right. there is no alternative like this is this is over now and we can sort of like you know take a look at the tape you know i think that that's that's part of what he's saying and I think John's right to say, like, what is he getting at? And to bring it back towards the text, what he wants to identify is, so he's going to say, yes, there's a dialectical element to history that overturns ideological concepts as societies, you know, rise and fall, but as basically like, for lack of a better term, human intellectual capacity accumulates over time. And he's smart enough to say that's not entirely satisfying one would want to identify the mechanism by which that happens. Otherwise, you're just kind of asserting that it has and hoping a thin empiricism is going to get you by. And I was like, okay, fair enough, man. And then <laughs> so, almost, so he's, he's got to talk about this dialectic, right? He's yeah, got to explain, and, so, and then he has to yeah. identify the motor of the dialectic. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. This is sort of like airport Hegel's Hegel. I like it. By the way, as airport Hegel, I, again, I should read a lot more Hegel. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I have a couple books in the show. I'm going to get to them. I'm going to get to them someday. Yeah. But, but like, I think on page 61, he has this. I sort, I sort of, I sort of wrote in the margin, dialectic as conversation, which is yes. just kind of a, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a low bar statement. But you know, the Hegelian dialectic is similar to its Platonic predecessor, the Socratic yeah. dialogue, that is a conversation between two human beings, being two human beings on some important subject like the nature of the good or the meaning of justice. And I, I found myself going, yeah, actually, that, 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 that's, a, that's a pretty clear, no frills explanation. Sure. And I, a lot of people don't hearken back to the Platonic dialectic or the Socratic dialectic when they talk it's about Hegel. It's actually the I think... opposite of how Hegel's dialectic was always explained to me, which is, you already yeah. know Plato, forget that shit. This is totally different. So seeing it actually explained in terms of the original use of that word was like, I I don't know. I don't have any basis on which to judge, but I actually prefer Fukuyama's account to other ones that I've heard. It was at least clear to me what was going on for him. Like whether or not this is actually Hegel's dialectic, this is Fukuyama's dialectic. And it was a clear account of what he thinks it is. I don't think he's hiding anything between the lines here. It's just like too straightforward for that. He's not necessarily being sneaky, you know? And I think that's what's so interesting about his pivot to the natural sciences as the mechanism by which this is going to happen, or at least to be as careful as he is here. It is a possible mechanism that has enough evidentiary support to suggest that a universal history is possible to chart. And then he will say it is not substantive enough of an account to fully say it is just us doing techne over and over again and iterating our way towards progress. And he's right in that he brings up, and we had an episode on this that I think Canada Mike and I did, 
where we took a look at different theories of human progress. And one of them was sort of um, uh, the German Marxist Wolfgang Streich's account of Engels's like techne via war account. And Fukuyama, after the Cold War, smart enough to be like, yeah, you really can't discount the amount of times we invent crazy shit to kill each other. And that might give us some questions about progress, you know? So what do we really mean? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he seems fairly sophisticated on that front. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I found it troubling that he characterized the like the cumulative nature of scientific knowledge as like, like heralded by all is obviously true. I guess whenever something is characterized like that and like the theoretical basis of it is then like common consensus, I'm sort of like suspicious because I'm like, well, I've not thought about it that much, but like, is that actually, could we say there's a directionality and a cumulative nature to techne? Like cumulatively acquiring knowledge that is like somewhat lost, but never entirely lost, like perhaps is empirically justifiable. But I think the directionality of it, which he also is important mm -hmm. for the whole thing to like have any meaning is perhaps saying that common consensus renders it like totally sufficient for our purposes yeah. it's maybe like the point at which you start to get a little more suspicious <laughs> of yeah. what's going well, on but i don't reminds know me, it reminds me of when nietzsche it's maybe thus spake zarathustra i mean we could have a whole conversation about what the different quotations at the beginning of the chapters are doing i haven't quite put that together though yet i think i'd want to go back through after i'm done because he does quote from that but I can't remember which uh, it's in, but it, it's the, he borrows a line from Moliere, who's making fun of the scholastic debate about efficient causes, which is why does opium make us sleepy? And the scholastics answer is that it has something that makes you sleepy in it, you know? But, uh, but as I was listening to the guys over at the New Thinkery say, one of them was having lunch with a chemist friend and one of the students asked the chemist, like, why does such and such emit heat? And he was like, oh, because it's thermogenic. And he was like, all right, so it doesn't really seem like the natural sciences has escaped the problem of efficient causes that scholasticism had. Yeah, no, uh -oh. no kidding. And if you if you you know if you thought that you'd 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 get into a lot of a lot of problems. I mean, like in so like I've talked to some so a conversation with an economist comes to mind where wherein this economist and I were sort of discussing a potential research project. And what the economist said was that the idea was somehow unscientific, that it didn't have enough science going on in it. And the more I, I, I sort of tried to inquire like, well, what is your definition of science? And he had no real response. It's more of like an aesthetic kind of thing. I, I think it's a rhetorical thing for a lot of people, and and I'm I'm saying it becomes that the more the, the more the more it's easier to sort of take take sort of the trappings of science as a definition of science if you've thought that these hard epistemological problems have been just solved by science, like if you thought that Hume's yeah. fork that Hume's empiricism was just like sort of not a problem anymore now that we've got like <laughs> microscopes and stuff it's yeah. kind of it's kind yeah. of insane but it's kind of there for a lot of people anyway no and i think i think i mean that's scientism. something sort of right so scientism sort of hanging in the background here i mean science at just a general level i think especially after covid in america 
science and scientism. So science at institutional level, and then scientism experienced as an ideological force are so closely wed together that it is hard to remember that they were ever even notionally separate as entities, practices, or ways of thinking. So I think it's important to hold that in one end. But Fukuyama savvy, he is at least going to say that there has been a critique of the type of industrial accumulation that has been borne out by enhanced techne, and that there has not been unanimous agreement about its goods and what it would mean. But he says it would be very difficult to de-escalate or totally get rid of scientific knowledge, even if we thought that it was incredibly dangerous. Sort of as, again, he's sort of leaning on the Cold War as evidence for that because of the advent of atomic weapons. You know, I mean, I think the sharpest case against the non-proliferation crowd is that it would be very, very hard to say, none of us are doing this anymore. And then as soon as everyone was done, there wasn't a moment where there just became a race to rediscover the quote unquote lost technology of the atom bomb. And, and there's also this dependency theory kind of kind of stuff that he talks about as well. Yeah, why don't you it, talk it, about that, Matt? Dependency like, us. Yeah, I'm a little bit less. I was really excited you were going to join us because I wanted someone to sort of like, and maybe you can, I don't know if you can speak to what dependency theory is doing here, maybe what you know about it. Why don't we hop into that? After. I think yeah. there's something important to think about with regard to him saying there is disagreement over whether or not we're headed in a good direction, which is that he was yeah. able to frame the debate as in like, let's choose a direction. And these people are saying, turn back the clock and we're saying, go with the clock. And I think that's somewhat insidious because those are not the only like possible positions to take on the issue and framing it that way. It's very easy to make one group of people seem like they have their head in the sand and they're a bit stupid and his group of people to seem like they're very smart and going with the times when in fact, like maybe things can be a bit more nuanced than that. And I, especially, you know, like it's certainly possible. We've read McIntyre on this show we've read and lashed lash we've looked into a lot of people who none of whom I think you could say are saying we just need to uninvent technology (laughs) so I don't really think that that was a very like I think the characterization of those people as Luddites was in fact so that you could dispense with them and Uh, that's something that probably to be aware of I will say that there were very prominent people in the 60s 70s and 80s who were very much saying that. Well, um, that's true, and, and but as Nietzsche would say, you have to pick the good enemies, otherwise you will yeah, be weak yeah. because you're only fighting the riffraff. The, and the, I think was, that if you, you know, like, it's easy to say that like the people who said dumb things said dumb things, there are much better expressions of a skepticism than sure, what he has yeah. chosen to engage. That was all I was trying to say. Sure, Matt, you were gonna say? I, I, I agree with what John just said. And like, while there are certainly an often comic examples of Ludditism throughout mm-hmm. throughout history. And I mean, I'll just say that the environmental movement as it exists right now seems to be like a prime current example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 there have been earlier examples of it that and uh, m- many of which have this sort of romantic view of nature and stuff. And, and the way that Fukuyama, fr- so like those exist, those voices exist and those voices are allowed. So you do need to address them. But I mm-hmm. think one thing that I think John is pointing out that 
Fukuyama is kind of doing, you know, sneakily is yes. he's, he's, he's sort of he's sort of confounding those critics of modernism and liberalism with other voices that aren't necessarily bringing the same critique forward and, 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 and kind of assuming that in, in doing so sort of revealing that he, he's kind of assuming that modernism is going to look one way and mm -hmm. that liberalism is all going to sort of converge to a similar thing. He's very, he is, uh, I, I was texting with John about this earlier, and it, it, it seems like from reading this, that the sort of popular American suspicion of, of Islam apparently existed a good deal prior to 9-11, because yeah. there's like, you know, I think at one point he put, put, I think he puts Islamic science in quotations, or like, or, <laughs> or, or at the very least, it's like, the, in context, the full sentence, he might as well have. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> And, I think and both I, are um, true. Yeah, I, I actually I'm remembering too. I, I was at a I was at a like a conservative political sort of thing, and Michael Anton was there, and he and this guy from oh, he was the, at the one I was just at too. I didn't yeah. I didn't sit for his panel, but he was that, guy, that guy that guy's a fucking idiot. So he he's <laughs> so he he's he's talking he, he and a guy who is not an idiot the other guy on the panel from the acton institute they're both sort of casually start talking about islam they start talking about free trade and it's it's sort of basically what they were giving air to is this sort of resurgent protectionist skepticism of free trade among the conservative right right but in doing so they were sort of that was sort of the broader discussion in the context but then they sort of started talking about islam and the the the, the notion is that there's something sort of like you know, fundamentally anti-commercial in Islam or something, which I don't think- Which is like much... absurd. It's yeah. absurd. It, <laughs> it's, it's very, it's, it's very- um, That's like, I've literally never cracked a history book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, 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 it's like your understanding of the Islamic world is like fully coming from like, I guess like White House pref, press briefings or something. Like, yeah. like it's- During it's, the Gulf it's War. Like, it's like, very, yeah, like, like, <laughs> so, so- yeah, so he, I mean, I think at one point too, he says, I think this is kind of revealing. I forget where it is. It's toward the end of this section. But he talks about how as societies grow wealthy, he thinks that they become, they look more alike. And he's sort of giving voice to this idea that there's like sort of a global monoculture that's mm -hmm. developing a true global culture, he calls it at one mm -hmm. point. And, and he's remarking that this, that it, that it looks, that as countries develop, they look more alike. I would actually totally disagree with that observation, just as an empirical, casual observation. Mm -hmm. The wealthier, wealthier countries look more dissimilar from each other. There, 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 there's, more, there, there's, there's way more specialization between mm -hmm. countries going on economically, but also culturally. And I think actually that very poor countries look a lot more similar, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in, that, in that everybody's in poverty. <laughs> You know, and that there's there tends to be like a you know kind of a ruling elite, and they might look a little bit different, but uh, from each other. But and anyway, that's just sort of an aside that he, mm -hmm. he brings up that as an observation, and I'm I was kind of reading it thinking mm, I don't I don't think that I don't think that at there's all. There's definitely and, something to be said for like the conflation of the existence of McDonald's in a place with like a monoculture also existing in that place, that's the, that's which I will fully admit, like I've I've like bought into that idea for a lot of my life, like. Mm -hmm. You know, like Varg Vikarens and the boys took like little guns and started shooting at their local Norwegian McDonald's when they were teens. I, it was like a common sort of thing. It's sort of like we have to stop America from destroying our culture by feeding us burgers or whatever. And like, well, yeah, it's this famous it's, Rammstein lyric. We're all living in America. Coca-Cola, sometimes war. Right. So yeah. 
and, and, and Fukuyama seems to, rather than say, oh, no, it's not like that, he embraces that. Oh, he yeah. embraces that and says, yeah, liberalism destroys local cultures and communities. And yeah. liberalism <laughs> does undermine pre-existing institutions in society. I'm not saying that that's not true in all ways, but it's, it's kind of, it, it, it's worth remarking on that. Yeah. He, it's amazing he how he's just like, and that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, or, or inevitable. I mean, and, yeah. and, and not just good, but like, you know, ordained by history mm -hmm. and that, that he, I just want to read a couple quotes to, and then we can get to the dependency stuff actually, but Please, like, yeah. the, but he says, so there's this part, page 60, again, this is just to sort of flesh out the universal Please. history stuff, but history proceeds through a continual process of conflict wherein systems of thought, as well as political systems collide and fall apart from their own internal contradictions. They are then replaced by less contradictory and therefore higher ones. Okay, maybe, you know, maybe. And therefore higher ones, which give rise to new and different contradictions, the so-called dialectic. And then a little further on down the page, for Hegel, the embodiment of human freedom was the modern constitutional state, or again, what we have called liberal democracy. That's a nice little shell game that's happening there. Well, like here, here's like a couple of things worth saying about that, right? Is that... Mm -hmm. You can actually, you can actually like, you can actually prove like there's a there's like a well-known, but not but fairly recent like like mathematical proof that shows that like basically any formal system has like an infinite number of of statements that you that using using the formal system you could not assign a truth value to, Me meaning a a a a logic a formal system meaning basically a, a language with some axioms that you then make deductions from. We're just talking about like. A, 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 a rational system of thought that you've got some premises that you then syllogistically move toward inferences from like a, it's a it's a very general sort of sort of notion right. but i'm bringing this up to say that like this account of like like what for, first of all like is society really going to be like a rational syllogism I mean, I just want to throw that out there. Like that may be very, very dubious. And I mean, and certainly, but like, I guess because Hegel sees the embodiment of human freedom as moving toward this lib liberal democracy thing, which by the way, I, I don't like, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that Hegel had the same idea of liberal democracy that Fukuyama did. Or like anyway, Mill had. Or like, yeah, like, or, I mean, <laughs> or the founding fathers. <laughs> well, I mean, and look, thus far, I've seen very little mention of Mill. I've seen, I've seen a very cursory explanation of, of, of Smith that I don't think really conform. He, Fukuyama doesn't seem to be like aware that there was a Scottish enlightenment, not just like <laughs> a continental enlightenment, yeah. which has very, anyway, I keep bringing up these epistemic issues but they matter because if history is really working like a logical syllogism toward capital T truth, you know, if that's how you want to conceive it, then you should be, one should kind of be sensitive to, you know, philosophical work that's been done to like sort of interrogate whether or not that's possible or, or what even, what even, what kinds of truth are really accessible to, 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 to a rational system. And this is why so Hayek makes this distinction, John brought this up earlier, but Hayek makes this distinction basically between, basically between like the Scottish Enlightenment and the Enlightenment on the continent. Sure, um, as one should. There's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of really important distinctions. And Fukuyama seems to be pretty clearly 
camped out on the continent. Anyway, I, I feel like I'm kind of repeating that at this point. So I'll... no, I think I mean I think, I think it's, it's fair because there's a certain element to which you could say like what Hegel, okay, what what Fuka Hegel is doing here is like <laughs> positing Hegel Yama. Yeah, Hegel Yama is that there is a certain sense of like from what little I know of Hegel, like rationality, it's not merely this thing that the mind is the substrate for or whatever that you use to then like figure out things about the world in some kind of provisional way but it is in fact the structure like ontologically or something of our march towards the end that thus means that any like pertinent criticisms of formal systems which that is an example of should then like be very very relevant to like what you're saying and i think there is an extent to which a fair amount of people who who seem to subscribe to like a certain hegelianism in this way are also not very conversant with much of the literature of the past hundred plus years or whatever on formal systems and whether or not they can be complete and like satisfactory in and of themselves or whether or not as probably some of us are kind of of the viewpoint of they will always be somewhat provisional and imperfectly mapping onto the world because they will always be models rather than like a map, you know, landscape convergence and they become one finally because knowledge has been perfected, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, in my view, impossible. And it's sort of a debate, which if you get into this world, it seems like the people who want to be involved in this kind of thinking just at the outset say, we all just accept this is possible, real and happening. And if you don't, then like this conversation isn't for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, I'll say this and then we'll get into the sort of like what's happening with import substitution. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is important because some of these debates have become as Matt touched on live again, especially on the American right. I was just at the intercollegiate studies Institute, you know, ambassador Lighthizer gave an incredibly bullish take on neo-mercantilism for America. There were people there dissenting that, of course, as well, sort of speaking to the fact that it's become live again. And so we should spend some time on that. But I want to say before we get there is that I'm really glad that Matt brought up the Scottish Enlightenment and that we've talked about these formal systems. But I just want to point out again, to put a finer point out, this all seems to be converging on triumphalism for America. I mean, it's just hard not to see that behind here, you know, like, like, even if I try to do like the naive suspended reading, Mm. like it's just there in the text, like faintly (laughs) in the background, you know, I can't avoid it. And I am shocked at how little of American thinking Mm. is actually in the book. Absolutely. And that is fascinating to me. Like there are a lot of things you might be able to infer from that. I wouldn't feel comfortable resting my hat on any of them, but there's sort of something about like types of like the institutions that created Fukuyama might be one of them. You could also say that there's a little bit of Cold War tit for tat happening here and that continental philosophy is often seen as the province of the left. The Straussians were sort of the last outpost for the right. And he's coming from that a little bit. He's straddling both sides, really. And so there's some of that going on, which is why he's so keen to differentiate himself from Marxism and his dialectic needs to include a kind of materialism while ultimately ending up ideal and being about ideological contest. And I also think 
that there is an interesting shift that happens in register or in perspective on the history of American thought once it becomes truly the world hegemon. And there seems to be a self-forgetting mechanism that's built into that. And it is even difficult now for us today to read early American history and not think that we were going to end up where we are and to understand why the debates amongst the founding fathers and their political progeny or actual progeny in the terms of people like Henry Adams, what world they were actually looking at. It is so easy to try to see Lincoln as an incredibly world historical figure, which isn't to say that the end of slavery, chattel slavery in this country, wasn't a world historical event, but that he was not in the same position as George H.W. Bush after the wall comes down. It is a very right. different America. And so I'm just, it's fascinating to me yeah. that there's no consideration for the internal history of American thought on what any of the terms he's using actually mean. The American liberal, to that point, like the American liberalism that he seems to be sort of most enamored with is seems kind of to be an American liberalism that has been acquired since, I guess- 1950s? Or like, or like, you know, like 1890, if you want to get, I mean, you know, like certainly yeah. the progressive era, but then definitely a post-war American liberalism, which yeah, has, like you're saying- At least post-Wilsonian, yeah. Post-Wilsonian would be a good, would, would be a good inflection point. Yeah. I mean, post-Roosevelt, I mean, a mm -hmm. very, but yeah, these are, these are very particular institutions that he seems to, and, and the, a part of that too is the global governance institutions, which are sort of also in the background here, I think. You're yes. right. Oh. You're right that there's that there's there's a great bit of American triumphalism. But there's also a great bit of like American triumphalism through the through the medium of the World Trade Organization, the yes. the IMF, yes. et cetera, uh, which is which is an even more recent like yeah, iteration. And, and, you, and you might not necessarily think is particularly liberal. Or you might you might think you might think that, I mean, the way I see it is that a lot of the, the impetus for creating a lot of those institutions has a lot of like reasonable, I think you could, you could say liberal motivations. Mm -hmm. I mean, namely to prevent further great war, which mm -hmm. is, is quite, you know, I mean, li liberals will say that liberalism is about peace, like sure. in part, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so I can see, but yeah, like where the, the, the administrative bureaucracies associated with those institutions are less than what, uh, much different than what a, like John Stuart Mill liberal, you know, might've, might've thought liberalism looked like, you know, circa 1850 or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, what the fuck would Jefferson say about this? Yeah. Let alone Washington, right. you know, and I'm not <laughs> saying that we'd have to take their word as gospel, but like. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because it was lurking in the background every time we brought up the lack of any attachment to the Anglo tradition in general, because that was always far more the one that our, the people who founded the country were attached to intellectually, like far and away. Yeah, much it was Roman influence. and Anglo, basically. Yeah. yeah. The, there was very little. Much more Mont like, Montesquieu than, than Rousseau. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, and it's point. like, you know, there's like Thomas Reed. At the time, like everyone knew who Thomas Reed was, famous philosopher, had an idea of like what it meant to like have a judgment that like jurists subscribe to 
in United mm-hmm. States courts because they were educated or what, you know, sure, yeah. like now literally no one knows who he is. Like no one's ever heard of him, but he was called like one of the most important philosophers of his day. White people, like I believe even Thomas Jefferson might've said that, you know, he was a Scottish enlightenment figure. There were many others. They all had Hutchison, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Hume, and of course, Smith. Hume, of course, yeah. yeah, and Smith, yeah, yeah. So it's many a weird, other, many others. I mean, many, many, and, uh, many and, such and also, cases, and also like, like, and and Hayek sort of talks about this too. Is that the distinction between continental and anglosphere is not? It's not a clean cut. It's you've not. Got, still, yeah, you, you've you've got Hayek would actually class John Stuart Mill as sort of somewhere between a, a Scottish Enlightenment liberal and a continental liberal. Where and then other you know Brits like Bentham who yeah. had a lot of liberal tendencies but would definitely be classed as a rational constructivist liberal. Yes, of yeah. of, of of a continental. Whereas De Tocqueville clearly of the continent. Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, would say is more of a more of a Scottish Enlightenment. I think Tocqueville has come up a couple of times, and what I think is so interesting is that like the view of America that you get here is through the eyes of an aristocratic Frenchman commenting on America. Which I'm not saying is wrong. I think yeah. Tocqueville is a great author, capital G, and not that he should never be invoked, but uh, that it's interesting that you're getting the sort of view from outside as the view itself in whatever he pulls from yeah. uh, American thinking. So, okay, we're going to bring this to the discussion of liberal tra- kinds of liberal trade theory, I would say. Like there are certain like liberal mercantilists as we as we know, and then there's sort of like the more directly market-oriented and there's dependency. I will only say that he is, to preface Matt, taking a look at these distinctions to try to come up with how we, the basically arc of history bends towards liberal democracy. And he's like, well, science isn't sufficient. And he's wondering, is wealth sufficient? And he's going to say, okay, let's take a look at how different ways th- ways of thinking about this have played out to try and understand whether or not this is, you know, the the mechanism or part of the mechanism. I think that's a good enough gloss as I can get. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the chapter that touches on this most is is it accumulation without end? It's or, that in um, victory of the VCR. Victory of the VCR. Actually, yeah, victory of the VCR is really more the. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, to, I, I guess to preface, you know, like we've said, like it's, it's rationality that Fukuyama seems to be as like sort of spearheading this march into the future and that we're, it, it's about the rationalization of labor and the rationalization of capital. And I guess the rationalization of economic organization and also that the like war is a big rationalizer he seems to say so you know i can see and, how and, a cold warrior would believe that well yeah and i mean like and and i mean to be fair like there's certainly like an element of there's definitely an element of truth to what he's saying like sure, i mean yeah. you can and, and this is you know this is harped on by plenty of people who would want like a a, a much larger role for the state in the economy but that you know that there there are you know, certainly like innovations that popped out of NASA or, you know, or uh, DARPA or whatever, then. Yeah, or the uh, or the Chicago Pile 1 and the Manhattan yeah. Project, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's undeniable that like war technology has shaped history. I mean, I'm sure the invention of, I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of things that you, you wouldn't even, because we have no counterfactual, like, I mean, who the hell knows how much, you know, gunpowder changed 
you know, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, what, what, what borders we would have, you know, in the world without, you know, very worried that. So, I mean, so like true, but I don't know true, but it's been true for like a really long time. <laughs> you know, that's been true for like ever because war has mm -hmm. been around forever. So like, I don't know that it explains the, 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 this, you know, economic ascendancy of liberalism, but he, Do you he, think he was trying to like, cause it seemed to me that this was invisibly predicated on a lot of classical economic ideas of the way that markets sort of will arrange it so that things are happening efficiently in a way. So there, there's that, but I don't know that this, there, I don't know that you would then obviously say that's a rationalization. Do you think that that is like something that he is injecting into that discussion where they would not necessarily call that rational, but merely efficient, and the two could be differentiated, if only subtly, because ultimately the idea that it's rational means that reason is directing it towards some end, whereas these classical economic theories of the way that markets work, the ends that it's being directed to are merely the desires of like billions of people, which is not like a single rational end. So there is an interesting, like, do you think that's true? Like, the, well, like that's what's going like, on here? Like, just, just as a, I mean, first of all, like, like sort of the, the nexus of tension that you're pointing to toward is between, I guess, rationality and irrationality or, or, or anarchy. I, 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 I see the thing is, is that there's a, depending on, you know, which philosopher we're talking about, you know, rationality and anarchy are opposed, or they are sort of like, or there's a rationality to the anarchic price system. I think, I think, I think Marx at, at, at times refers to the market as having anarchic tendencies and that there's mm -hmm. a, there's a, there's sort of a latent desire to rationalize these anarchic sort of forces and direct them. And that's certainly an ambition of, you know, like, 20th century socialism, but also like corporatism, maybe fascism, maybe really, I, I, I think in some sense, it's, it's, it's there in most political discourse, even on the, on like right liberals. I mean, like, I, I, I could certainly see like a, you know, a, a, a Ronald Reagan, like appealing to the irrationality of some kind of like, of like, a, say like a labor union strike. Or whatever sure, and, yeah. and saying that you know that part of what's going on here is is a lack of rationality or and that we need to sort of set up institutions that channel these forces rationally i don't I, I not everybody would couch it in those terms and i don't know if i would either but that certainly seems to be some one way to characterize the thing and yeah but the, there's a tension between rationalization and anarchic de decentralization and that this is kind of wrapped up in decentralization versus centralization right fukuyama seems to say at times that well the centralization of the state has been a rational a rationalizing force yes he seems he seems to point to that at times whereas maybe the decentralization of activity in the market is also rationalizing whereas different people would say different things about it right so and, and and the way that he seems to, I guess, I guess one thing is that like, I want to get this point out there and then sort of speak more directly about the dependency stuff is like the, this evolution toward, you know, like something in the universal history concept. He, he, so like where, so like, what is he saying is wrong about Marx, I guess, is like one sort of important thing to, to, to get at. What, what does Fukuyama seem to see as the limitation there? And it's definitely has nothing to do with this universal history concept or this idea that we should like move towards some new stage of society. Like Fukuyama seems to agree with that wholeheartedly. He just kind of, he seems to just say that like 
well, what was what was wrong is the particularities. By the way, I mean, you know, Fukuyama and Marx are two completely different orders of thinkers, right? I mean, like, I don't, <laughs> you know, but he seems to, that seems to be, you know, I, I think if pressed, you would probably say, yeah, well, he, he, he was right about sort of the general mechanism, but wrong about the particularities of how, of yeah, how this yeah. universal history was going to come about. So, and whereas I feel like Marx, the critique was like empirical to a large extent of Marx, he pretty much settles it with like there well, he just looked at failure. Moscow. He just looked at Moscow and went, "I mean, see. come on, right? Yeah, see? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. There's a good bit of, and I'm sure that his readers will 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 mostly glob onto that. But I think that this discourse he has about rationality of liberalism is actually mm. very directly aimed at, I guess, at, at socialists who 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 would who would who want to see a rational system or at least he's at least the way that he reads socialism seems to and it's kind of the way i read a lot of a lot of socialism i think especially before like sort of the like post-structural kind of kind sure. of turn yeah. pre-70s like, yeah yeah like alfazar is certainly concerned with 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 the rationality of a, of a socialist system compared with the anarchist the 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 you know quote anarchy of of a, of a market and marx was certainly concerned about san simone was concerned about it mm -hmm. who's you predates Marx. Proudhon had some concerns about it as well. And, you know, Hilferding, too, I mean, now I'm just kind of name dropping, but like <laughs> certainly, certainly a concern with the, the, the rationality of a social system is, and, and, and I think Fukuyama is, is, he doesn't need to do much work to sort of demonstrate why the institutional structures in Soviet communism didn't lend themselves toward efficient allocations of resources. He kind of doesn't have to, like you're saying, but, but but because because that was a big part of the promise, that was a big part of the ambition of of, of the Soviet project. He sort of he 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 wa wants to you know kind of kind of dwell on that and sort of reassure. At least that's how I'm reading it. He wants to like reassure people that actually liberalism is rational. You know, even though it's well. Anyway, okay, so anyway, I'll I'll just just say what this. he's doing. I'll know? I'll say this. That is going like. I think the rational thing is going to be about the capital G good human ends and the appetite of function that happens in his ontology in the next part. So he's really teeing that up. Like what seems to be implicit is that communism, Marxism, whatever, I think he's willing to sort of conflate that here, yeah. is it had the wrong or a mistaken idea of the human subject. That seems to be something he's saying, right? Which, by the way, is not how a lot of liberals would put it. No, a, a lot. A no. lot of liberals would say that. Let's take an extreme form. There is no such thing as human nature, right? Sure. What you have is is everybody has you know different concerns, different motivations, different preferences. And what's cool about liberalism, a liberal would say, is that you manage to sort of mediate disputes between these conflicting visions for the good. These inherently and always will conflict kind of visions of the good. Instead of replacing them with one unconstrained and probably limited conception of the good, you, you instead allow for things like checks and balances and competition and, and sort of principles of principles of equality in the political sphere or, sure. or, the, yeah. or the economic sphere to, to sort of allow for those, those, those different, that a part of human nature is that all humans are different, would be you know, an alternative liberal view. Sure. I mean, this is really him pulling from this, from, I think, sort of some of his Straussian totally. things. And that's something that uh, we talked about on the first episode. Perry Anderson pointed out that this is the fundamental tension in this work, the Kojevian historical progress, and then the ancient via Strauss, like platonic ontology of the tripartite soul, you know, so 
Totally. This is a very idiosyncratic approach to how this goes. So, but I guess we've harped on that enough. Yeah. So we all can, that being right, said, the, all yeah, that being yeah, said, yeah. Matt, what's up with this? With the dependency stuff. So, yeah. so like, okay, so the VCR, Why America didn't develop, East Asia did. Why? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, to, to, you know, to be fair, like, it's a, it's just a really big question. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's sort of like the big question in economics. So how uh, do you feel about his account? We could say like Latin America, they primarily relied on import substitution to try and grow this like domestic consumption and production. And they really like cut themselves out of a world market, which would have allowed them to have access to resources and to leverage their cheap labor in order to build up industries like this is the this is the narrative yeah Whereas but, he says east asia did a completely different thing and like export focused building of it and like park chung he ideology like we're going to build industries first light industries but then we're going to transition into heavy and chemical and like this is going to be like he doesn't seem to have a problem with that because it's both rational and effective so it's interesting you know i'm curious to your take on all of that stuff yeah, no, totally. I mean, so here, I think that's really well set up, actually. And like, here, I see a lot more strength in Fukuyama's argument overall, you know, like, so although he has this idiosyncratic explanation for what's going on and the mechanism, I think that the way he's sort of describing the sort of cross-sectional differences in prosperity as measured by a whole bunch of different i mean we could we could we could cart out life expectancy life expectancy in liberal democracies is generally generally longer than autocratic regimes again it's it's kind of like so 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 broadly speaking i ag i agree with his his setup of this right that although there's this sort of competing explanation so here i'll i'll read from from page 102 right bottom paragraph to sort of reiterate this in the last in a last ditch effort to save dependency theory. Now, dependency theory, actually, I should, maybe I should sort of bring up what's kind what, of what we all grew up on. If you were even vaguely left, <laughs> like at any point in your life, yeah. whether or not, you know, it, you got a hefty dose of dependency theory because it was merely the water in which you swam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. like, yeah. I think I he, mean, he says that Lenin is the first dependency theorist, which I'm sure imperialism, is sort of the like stage of, yeah, that, that one. Yeah, it's like, it's like, so I guess the idea is that of dependency theory is that, and it was developed primarily in Latin America, and he has sort of an intellectual explanation for like why that is, but that the wealth that we experience in the liberal West is somehow comes at the expense of, in terms of decreased wealth, in terms of poverty in the third world, quote unquote, right? That, that it's a zero, it, it, there's an element so I, I, don't, I don't want to paint with too broad a stroke because there's plenty of nuance in dependency theory, but broadly it's that it, there's sort of an element that you got to look at it as like a zero sum game through that lens that mm -hmm. if you're going to get rich here, somebody else has to be poor. And in a very fundamental way that, that the, what Fukuyama calls the classical liberal trade theory, which, so I'll just say, according to classical liberal trade theory, he says on a page 100, participating in an open system of world trade should maximize the advantage of all, even in one if one territory sold coffee beans and another computers. Economically backward latecomers to the system, 
that is the global system of, of, of capitalism, I suppose, should in fact have certain advantages in economic development since they can simply import technology from the earlier developers rather than having to create it themselves. And you, you, do, you do see some of that, like in, in a lot of African countries, they, 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 they have sort of, and it's a complicated situation, but they've, they've sort of been able to skip a lot of like the landline communication infrastructure because they simply weren't, weren't they, they didn't have much of an economy at the time when that would have been the way to interconnect communication in the country. So they've sort of, you know, skipped ahead, although in, you know, in so many ways, Africa has not skipped ahead of anything, right? So, sure, and in um, some cases, have gone backwards. If you take a yeah. look at the, the Cape Town electrical grid or something like that, like well, but they've yeah. also skipped backwards. If you look at measures of of economic freedom, sure. if you look at sort of like what what, what what's it called uh, uh, the economic freedom index of the world. Wall Street Journal publishes it every. Actually, th th there's a there's a bunch of other organizations that publish it, but Wall Street Journal does an article on it most every year. And you can see, I can share a link with you guys that shows sort of this plots it over time and how by, by many measures, measures that would, that would reflect how difficult it is to start a business, how difficult it is to buy some commodity from abroad, how stable the currency is, how, um, how high taxes are using, using these indicators. And it's, you know, it's a difficult thing to measure. And there's a lot of endogeneity too, by the way, a lot of people would argue that, well, it's because it's, it's rather than institutions leading to prosperity. Maybe it's the fact that maybe it's more, maybe the story. And I think a dependency theorist would, would, although this isn't, this isn't the crux of dependency theorists, but there's a lot of dependency theorists who would say that, well, what happens is, is countries are lucky. They either have resources or they don't. And then when people become rich, they, they demand a more, more liberal democratic institutions. So th there's, I guess, I guess what I want to say is that to explain the modern world, some appeal to institutional differences between nations as they existed before like 1700 and, and institutional differences compared to now in, in, in a lot of these countries. It, it seems to me like a really like uh, viable explanation that you certainly do see this big change in institutions. You see a greater protection of property rights you see an expansion of free trade. And throughout that historical process, you see a lot of illiberal institutions, of course, as well, right? But, but if you, you know, it's just broadly, if you're to compare you know, England in 1700 compared to England in 1950, it's, it's easier to start a business. You don't have to get like some kind of you know, public charter you know, to, to, to become a merchant. And the system of, of laws that resolve disputes between merchants and between you know, customers and so forth are a little bit more well-defined and 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 well enforced so it's a thing that's changed so therefore it kind of makes sense to think that that change caused some differences in in outcomes and you know if you you know i i guess what are the alternative explanations right that the dependency theorists bring forward is that like well really what 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 accounts for this prosperity they admit that there's an increase in prosperity it's hard not to notice that but they'll say, you know, that a part of the deal is, is protectionist trade policies that and there's, that there's an infant industry argument that's put forth by a lot of dependency theorists that says basically that, well, for, for a country to develop, the government has to sort of protect certain industries and let those grow. 
and, and sort of become competitive over time. John and I have actually been talking a lot about the Korean situation. I've uh, been thinking recently. a lot about the Korean situation as well. John and I have talked about that several times. It is very fascinating. And it is just, I want to say, one of the things that's interesting about sort of the difference between sort of dependency theory and what seems to be its negative, which is the liberal trade theory that Fukuyama rolls with, is that the Korean case is so strange I think in terms of its combination of liberal and illiberal and like it's especially its relationship to the United States and like the geopolitics of that make it very rich. And I would also say that he seems to want to have it both ways every time Japan comes up about hmm. like when Japan is liberally developmental and illiberally and like when those suit, like what he wants to say is this flux towards liberalism and, and there's a bit of a conflation with the modernism under the uh, under imperial japan and sure. you know yeah. anyway go on yeah yeah and i just wanted to 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 point that out is that there seems to be obviously he has to gloss right he can't like tease out the fine points of what's happening here and i get that but yeah i mean what, I, it leaves me with i have some skepticisms well like like what what, what do you think built the modern world labor unions I mean, I'm just saying, like, like what, 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 you know, throw out some alternative explanations. I, I suppose what happened, maybe for a dependency theorist, they might say, well, what happened is that the West became an imperial power and they're just really good at it. And what they do is they're really efficient at exploiting developing populations and that, that, there, that there's a great deal of exploitation involved. And that's sort of where this wealth is coming from in the West. Mm. I don't think that really squares well with like, the, the data. And I don't think that, but, but like, you know, what are some other explanations, right? I mean, you know, Max Weber had an explanation. It had to do with ideas and religion, right? That, that like sure. the yeah. Protestant work ethic is what led to the modern world. It's yeah, kind of like when we talked to that person earlier about the Confucian ideological reasoning behind East Asian development as a conservative, as a neoconservative idea in the United States, although not one that was entirely not indigenous because there were many expositors of that way of thinking in East Asia itself, like Singapore particularly. But nonetheless, it was interesting to me because for him, South Korea and Japan, but I think South Korea is maybe a better example, mm -hmm. is the retort to dependencia is he's saying they had no natural resources of any particular value all they had was cheap labor and look what they did with it. Right. Um, and his, I think he, yeah, as a Fukuyama, point, yeah. like the way in which he thinks about things, he's, he's, he's comfortable with some mixture of, I think, like state and market mm -hmm. kind of like action. And so it's easy for him to sort of say like the government in South Korea did it right. And that's fine. And that's not even an argument against the liberal trade. Like for him, at least he's able to take sure, it in yeah, that yeah. way. And that's, not something we can really debate here. I agree with Emmett that it is very, like from what I've been able to learn about the South Korean case, it's so nuanced that you can't learn enough about it and then walk away with like any easy point to make, which I think is right. maybe what is so interesting about it is like- it Yeah, really and I, I just wanted to say there's a similar thing about Japan. And I think it's interesting that those end up as examples, especially because it's an empire at some point with like, and that that empire has a relationship with the way South Korea ended up being formed, especially because Park Chung-hee was himself a product of 
Japanese imperial education and directly took a lot of those lessons. Past, and so I just think that past dependency matters, historical sure. and I just matters. And my, yeah, sure. my only point isn't that like, you know, it's really labor unions that did it. It's just that I think that these are fascinating accounts that I don't have a good explanation for. And that makes me skeptical of glosses of whatever their situation is. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the best I can do is sort of say that like there are so many competing explanations for why we are so rich. Yes. And and it's a really important question and like to 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 name sort of another sort of you know competing idea Deirdre McCloskey is a, a an economist uh, mm -hmm. and she writes about the basically like economic history of England and uh, tra trade in England and and she writes about a lot of things though she writes a lot about the history of liberalism and her and 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 of capitalism and a lot about the use of rhetoric and economics anyway she writes about a lot of fascinating things and she's also just a fantastic like well-trained microeconomist and and economic historian anyway i'll just sing her praises because i like her a lot but yeah. but but her her and this is sort of a more recent you know addition to the literature is she says that what really built the modern world is like the stories that we tell ourselves about what is a noble life changed and became less martial in orientation, less, less, less about distinguishing yourself as a brave warrior for in service of, of a, something like a state um, or a collective and became more geared toward the nobility of the ordinary life of a small merchant. And mm -hmm. that, and that basically this, this story of a, of a person making their way in the world by their own gumption or whatever. I mean, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's it, the, the caricature of it would be like a ragged dick, right? Was, yeah. Horatio yeah. Alger. Right. Is the, yeah. 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 Totally. But, but, you know, but it, it's sort of undeniable that in like European literature, it, it, it really does become sort of an archetype that wasn't really there before. Mm -hmm. And it, it, and, and, you know, it's, it, it, it's maintained as sort of an archetype that some people are suspicious of you know, suspicious of the money changer, you know, but, but that, that's one of her explanations, right? But sort of a really standard classical liberal explanation is that free rights allow people to derive the benefit of the fruit of their labor and allow them to derive the benefits from productively using their capital. By capital, I mean, I mean money, but I also mean, you know, equipment, land, you know, so your farm is a, is a piece of capital, you know, sure, your, yeah. your tractor Physical is a piece and otherwise. of capital, yeah, yeah. right. And that basically having, having property rights over those things and, and, and being able to freely contract with other people sort of incentivizes a rational use of that, of, of those resources is one way to put it, mm -hmm. um, right? And, but another way to put it is just that you allow people to freely do what they want you know, without, within an institutional structure that prevents excessive harm on others, right? So like, you can't steal other people's stuff, right? In this system, right? You can't just do whatever you want, like mm -hmm. in the system, right? You know, and, and your property, your, your actual sort of list of property rights often looks like a list of things you can't do with your property. You know, like you can mm -hmm. own a gun, but you can't shoot somebody with it unless, <laughs> sure. they, unless they try to, you know, you can, right. own, you can own a farm, but you can't employ slaves on it. You know, you can't own slaves anymore. In fact, the first time we were able to do that was, you know, that, that, that's sort of a liberal kind of, that's a change that happened under liberalism. Mm -hmm. And the, so Adam Smith has this line about the extent, the division of labor 
is so I'm, I'll, I'll sort of butcher this paraphrasing it, but that the division of labor is sort of proportional to the extent of the market. And Fukuyama has a pretty decent explanation of that, 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 you know, so you, you, you want to make, you want to make some commodity and you want to sell it to a lot of people. Well, the more you sell of it, the more it makes sense to hire a bunch of people to, 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 to execute various like tasks along like an assembly chain. So that the more, the, the, the more, the more you're selling, the more incentive you have to specialize your labor or, or you know, rationalize your labor. But, but really it's just, it's just sort of like, you know, having, having, having laborers do a lot of little tasks instead of, instead of, instead of all the big tasks in order to, to sort of reach the scale of production that will, you know, expand the, 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 the wealth of a community. And so that's sort of, that's sort of Adam Smith's account. And then, you know, there's an important contribution that Ricardo made, David Ricardo, around comparative advantage. And Fukuyama talks about that too in here. So, you know, and the idea is that you don't need to have an absolute advantage to, to, to do well in a, in a, in a, in a system of, of, of free trade, mm-hmm. that you don't have to be the best at everything. Uh, and, and because the person who is best at everything can, has, has an incentive to contract out some of the stuff that they do to somebody else who does it a little bit worse, frankly, mm-hmm. in order to focus on the, 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 the more productive and profitable lines of lines of business, business that they, that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are gains to trade that are not, it's very counterintuitive to a lot of people to understand this idea of comparative advantage. It, it, it's a really, it's a really foundational principle and it's sort it cuts against the, this, Fukuyama calls it dependency theory, but th- this sort of protectionist idea. So anyway, I'm talking too long. No, and I would say that one of the things that he brings up in, in service of this argument, which I think is important, is that he says, you know, I, I think this is him, or, or maybe I'm just pulling from something else I've read, but basically that like highly technological societies need to exist alongside like a society that doesn't have all the high heavy industry can still be prosperous because it will do things that that society no longer does anymore, right? Whether it's the extraction of raw materials or whatever. And I think that you sort of see a comparative advantage thing happening here too, right? So just for just a casual example, because I want to move on here because Fukuyama does eventually think this is not sufficient to explain this progress of history. In the US, we don't really mine a bunch of stuff. Some of that's regulatory, but also some of it's because like, we just don't do it that much anymore. We may, maybe we're not as good as it, but we don't have to be that good at it because we can contract with somebody else to do that for us. Maybe we could in fact do it better for all sorts of reasons, but it is frankly easier to not focus on that for a variety of reasons and to trade with a country that does. In, in order to do other things. In order to do other right. things, yeah. So I mean, that's yeah. yeah. So I think that's not the, not not to just take a load off, but no, sort of no. you know and right so, yeah. yeah. So you can do other things, right? You're not just mm-hmm. like oh, and there is that. a sense in which the argument because I don't think you could clearly differentiate like we'll put it this way. So Korea obviously engaged in some kind of state-led development practices, some of which mm-hmm. could be termed protectionist. However, and we this was by the way exactly yeah, yeah, no yeah, great Great Britain as well. However. This is importantly 
highly plugged into the world market. Like they start out doing a lot of textiles, like industry, which like if you look at your clothes, most of them are now from like a Southeast Asian country. However, those countries did that and it, they've been doing that. Whereas South Korea did that, but now no one's clothes are made in South Korea because they were able to use that as a way to do other things, but they had to start somewhere. And the fact was that they had people who could do something like make clothes, essentially. They had enough people, they had comparative advantage in textiles. So even to the extent that there is like, you know, what one thing the park government provided in spades was just like financing for forever for you if yeah. you were an important business. But that doesn't mean that the people in those businesses were like just automatons or whatever. They were still participating in markets and making things that people wanted in order to make money. So there was still like market logic at play, especially global market logic at play. And if anything, the government and businesses were working in tandem, but often eventually in tension with one another to increase the yeah. GDP, also was, increase their own returns. Matt, yeah, pointed out, and then you too, John, that I think Fukuyama is just going to allow that there's a dance being done here. Right, right. He's not fundamental on either end of it. He doesn't want to be. And I think what he ultimately thinks of the wisdom of liberal democracy and which is, of course, he will just call democracy, as a lot of people do, is that it allows by having a state, but it not being the main decision maker, but also being like a broker of certain contracts or whatever, enforcing contracts and things like that. It allows for a little bit of wiggle room and for people to ventilate faction and make decisions about the society they want to live in. And so that tension is ultimately productive and towards the good. I think he would see this as the wisdom of the liberal democratic order, which I'm just going to pivot now, if that's all right, to yes. <laughs> sort of how he's going to end it, which is he wants to talk about education. And so this is the second to last, or one of the, towards the last in here. And he says, you know, he says, this is the most difficult part of his argument, right? So this is on 109. Does the mechanism of modern natural science lead to liberal democracy? The logic of advanced, if the logic of advanced industrialization determined by modern natural science creates a strong predisposition, predisposition in favor of capitalism and market economics, does it also produce free government and democratic participation? And that's what he's going to take a look at this. And he's going to say there would be like three explanations for this type of theory, right? That he's going to look at. There's probably way more, right? But he's interested in three. And the first one is that this is a function of... It's the functional argument that only democracy is capable of mediating the complex web of conflicting interests that are created by a modern economy, right? And he says there's something to this, though he's not totally satisfied by it. The second one, as he says, is about why economic development should produce democracy has to do with the tendency of dictatorships or one-party rule to degenerate over time and to generate more quickly when faced with the task of running an advanced technological society. I think there's something almost intuitive about that as well, is that if you're going to develop and then bring sort of a merchant class into the fold, at some point, I think this is sort of the, your back pocket logic about it goes, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't really know about this all being centralized in an executive power. It seems to actually get in my way a lot. And this is not an efficient decision maker. And 
the bourgeoisie should have more control and agree to something that was a little bit more open towards the trade we want to enact. And then Franco was utilized pretty well to that extent, I think, that the Mm -hmm. people who put Franco in power simply no longer existed by the time he died. So there was no support for another Franco. Yeah, right, exactly. And I think that there's something to that, and he does too. But ultimately, he says that, and I thought this was very surprising, the strongest argument is one of education. Which to me was the weakest. Right, yeah. (laughs) The powerful (laughs) line of argument linking economic development with liberal democracy is that successful industrialization produces middle-class societies, and that middle-class societies demand political participation and equality of yeah. rights. And if we go back to part one, this is about the quest for recognition mm. that is part of this mechanism. He's dropped that out, interestingly, here, though he invokes it in the first part of the book. And this is sort of the cliffhanger on which this ends, because it's really this ontology that's going to help us understand why education is going to be, even though he says, again, not totally sufficient, but one of the strongest arguments and why the quest for recognition is so important and what is unique in liberal democracy and that it can satisfy, which doesn't mean there are no problems, but that there are no major alternative ideological contenders to its regime because it can supply a way in which these tensions can be resolved. It seems to me that there is a, a sense in which like the actual facts of the ground, so to speak, are important. And one is that no, no higher education system anywhere in the world exists without reference to the American one, just like full stop. Like the best of the best in most countries come here to go to school. Mm-hmm. The ones who have money, especially so. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter if you're from yeah, China so much so that we're, or wherever. We're, we're, we're our institutions so that we can take on more of them. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And it's it's yeah. a huge business yeah. and everyone wants to come here. Like no one's going to stay in their country if they can go to Harvard. No one's going to stay in their country if they can go to a good state school here. Like there's just a huge difference. And I'm not saying that that is like factual, like these are better places to learn, but I'm in the the viewpoint of like the educated middle class and up elite of the world, like this is the place to come. So if you're going to talk about education as just being the like neutral medium through which an ideal spreads, I think it's important to look at how it's actually a like completely non-neutral medium through which a certain culture's values are just, there's no choice but for you to come here and then think certain things about America. Not everyone is necessarily gonna come here and love like these ideas and want to like be liberally democratic or whatever, but there's also just an extent to which it's unavoidable. Like I know so many people who grew up all around the world, but they grew up watching friends. They grew up what maybe Seinfeld if they were really like, you know, I think that would be kind of hard to get, but nonetheless, like these TV shows were what they watched as kids alongside whatever things else. And they come here, they go to school, they learn to speak English. They spend time in New York city. Like, this is not is not for nothing that this is the case. And I think to just view education as not consisting of these very real spaces with a very real atmosphere that really actually reinforces certain structures of belief and completely demolishes others by their very existence and presence. Like there is a Heideggerian qualitative element to the world, which is being utterly denuded by this conceptual framework of education and democracy that there's particularities uh, to me that are 
once you look at those, it's hard to say that this explanatory sort of education thing is really satisfying. Because to me, it's much more about people coming to a place and getting much more than a commitment to an ideal. It's aesthetic as much as it is anything. I, I kept thinking while reading these parts about education, again, I, I was sort of reading this concocting complaints the whole way through, but that like how rationally constructed is the American education system? Because you ask American yeah. educators and they'll tell you that it's like a very haphazard sort of web of like institutions that they're not always very enthusiastic about. And I, 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 I don't know. So that's one that. That's that's one thing to 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 mention, I guess. And I'm a I'm a little bit more ambivalent than than, than you, John. I think about the the impact of American universities on the world's population. Like I'm at a university that, that like I think the student population is something like 70% international, which is which is which is an outlier for sure. It's a very international university. And it's great. There's a lot of conversations that you can have that you wouldn't really, you know, kind of be able to have. Just anywhere, and, and that, that 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 that's really wonderful. But I don't really, I don't, I, I get the sense that there is almost a almost like a worrying lack of 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 any like statement about what American ideology even is. It sort of seeps in through the through through the through the culture by osmosis to 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 I think a lot of international students if they stay here like you know like like five years, nine years you know, for schooling. But I mean, I've, I, I've asked a lot of my, my sort of colleagues here, but like, you know, what, 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 what do you feel like you sort of learned about the American system? And they're like, practically nothing, you know, they, they, they really don't, almost like they don't, that, that's anecdotal, you know, but I think, I think sort of, to be charitable to your point, like there's, there's so many things that sort of seep in on tr truly ideological and in the, in that I mean, can, yeah i'm not surprised know. to hear you say that i think maybe to say what i was saying in a more clear way i think that the lifestyle is what is inculcated i don't mm. think that institutions poli political practice i don't think that those are directly like anyone gets much of that simply because it's boring but what's not boring is lifestyle and like the mm -hmm. way in which we consume here that's actually quite interesting and fascinating. And you see it replicated all around the world in different mm -hmm. ways, especially by the groups of people, or at least led by the groups of people who can actually afford to come here. And, you know, so there, it's an interesting interplay. Like this is the globalization thing we were discussing and whether things are different or the same, it's part of that. But I think that's the like main thing with which we are exporting via the education. And I think that, that makes in a lot some of ways, it has a sense. very there's a lot of tension, the connection between that and like a commitment to liberal democracy. So I'm not saying this is like a foolproof, like whatever way of, I just don't find his, his account very convincing to begin with. And this is actually what I think education does. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I should say. Either. I mean, how, how, how integral is like the existence of a middle class to, it, it, it seems to be like another example of sort of extrapolating from the American experience. There seem to be a lot of examples in of 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 liberal democracies today where the 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 sort of the the social hierarchy and how it's changed is a lot different than that anyway mm -hmm. no so i think yeah i take all those points i sort of want to put a bow on a little bit of some of this right so it's historicism yeah it's historicism heresy and i think i think sort of 
one of the things just to add a little bit to the university discussion that's that's interesting is it also depends on like what type of university you know like if i knew somebody who was a mexican ambassador's son and he went to yale i think and it became clear to him that over his time in yale that part of what yale was offering was a way to become friends with the children of american elites and that that was a very different experience than like bunch of people from different countries all in the engineering department yeah. in an American university. Yeah, I'm at, I'm at a business school. So it's like, there's, it's very there's different. so much stuff about universities that don't even like reach into the-, the Right, right. Yeah. And so that these have their own, to John's point, like sort of non-neutral, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, or maybe just even ambient ideological mechanisms. And that like, ultimately what's interesting here is that to John's point about it being an American way of consuming is that desire ends up where Fukuyama ends, right? That there is something about our desire, something inherent in the human condition that might actually serve as a better understanding of the mechanism that is sort of the clearinghouse for things scientific, economic, and political, the prism through which these things are expressed or experienced or, you know, whatever. And that this seems to have in, in the background relationship with some of the ideas about civic consumerism or the culture of consumption that are very recent, very post-war, and were mm -hmm. not even met without ambiguity by Americans themselves. And I'm sure are not met without ambiguity by the people who end up inculcated in this culture, whether they come here for university or what have you. And for sure, I think I think that that is how he's going to tie together all of these things to move to his discussion of what he really thinks the human person is, and why the human person is basically wears liberal democracy like a tailored suit, you know. Yeah. And and that's ultimately where he's going here. And again, none of that is satisfying yet because he's sort of hinting about what comes next and the desire for recognition is going to reassert itself. He's also going to take a look at differences in culture, which I'm interested to see him handle. I wonder if he's as graceful as careful he's, as he's been in some parts or whether he's going to be clumsy as I think yeah. is, will be deeply informative in terms of how he sees the human subject. But Ultimately, what is so fascinating about this book is A, that we're like, what, 30 years away from its publication now? Mm. Some of these things, the university experience that we're describing existed in its infancy at this time. You know, it's yeah. not that it was never happening, but like it is a much bigger yeah. thing now. And it's not even that there's a telos that leads there. I'm just saying that there are things that we might be assuming are the exact same thing that he's talking about that have in fact changed whether in quality or quantity sense. There are tons of things like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm, I'm actually a little bit, again, I'm sort of ambivalent about how much has changed about universities. Like if you look at the university scene in the 1960s, it's pretty radical, pretty, pretty wild. So you know, people have a lot of conservatives, especially have a lot of complaints about universities as they exist today. And I'm, I'm not altogether 
sure that that they're anyway i'm skeptical of that but like but to, but but i agree with your point broadly though there's a ton like when he's talking about environmentalism too and he's, he says that as a whole democratic political systems reacted much more quickly to the growth of ecological consciousness in the 1960s and 70s than did the world's dictatorships and of course the environmentalism that he's talking about in 1990 whatever is a lot different than than what's going on now it's already but, taken out a human rights dimension and yeah. dropped its malthusianism by that and, point and and it's been it's been so it's been so integrated into the 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 the, the cathedral hedge, the, the, <laughs> the cathedral sure sure the hegemony yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and but also he seems to like even with like with the with the environment the passage on environmentalism i'm looking at like 114 to 115 he seems to think that that too is an expression of rationality that it's rational to it's rational to conserve on some level and that that that's what's happening that the west got rich got smarter i think he says on 116 people can be taught to see their own self-interest more clearly and it's like that there's this it's like people are just getting like smarter over here so you know they <laughs> yeah. like so they so they so we, we recycle now we don't do what we used you know we don't yeah. we don't because recycling lives. totally wasn't like yeah. a weird mob con job yes. yeah like like as if like oh we don't litter because like we're smart that's what yeah. you're, it's like i don't think so i think people it's like it's a sociological thing now i mean it's like if if i were people get like viscerally upset if i begin to speak with them no, about actually, actually where your recycling a, actually goes you but know? that's <laughs> also like a really great point right like just to just to bring it back to this and the way that this has changed there's a great episode of mad men where they're having a picnic in the park and then they get up and don draper just like flips the blanket yeah. over and they walk away from the trash in the that park was, that was how it was yeah. that's just how it was you know and so i think like but the well, idea that we that we avoid that now because we're more rational is like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know either. So I think that here is where you can really feel the triumphalism, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain lack of doubt. There's an incredible confidence that borders on hubris, I think, in here. And it is also hard to fault Fukuyama for that in a way because of the end of the Cold War, which like as he talks about at the beginning, a lot of people left and right were like, this will never end. Sure, sure. Paul Samuelson, one of the first people to win a Nobel Prize in, in economics and sort of like a you know 20th century total giant in the mm -hmm. field, a real pioneer of like mathematical economics has like sections of his, his, his textbook, which was like the textbook, you know, yeah. at the time that basically plotted his projection for like Soviet economic output. And, you know, of course, this, you know, you know, here America's, you know, staying down here on this, you know, you know, steady incline, but the Soviets are, you know, because the Soviets are just, they're just outstripping everybody. They're producing so much more steel and wheat and, you know, they're, 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 they're so efficient somehow, you know, that, that was, that was a commonly accepted story. Yeah. I mean, it will also, because it was a commonly accepted fear. I think it's yeah. important, you know, like that. I think that that was really, that was really it. So, all right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Matt, thanks for joining us. John, good to see you as always. Stay safe out there. We will see you next time.